0: Zion being laid low and plowed down as a field, we get into verse 1 of chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. I'll continue on just for the sake of continuing on in his statement here. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the Lord, or to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All right. So this great change in tone here from, you know, the sun will go down on the prophets and it'll be black over them and the seers shall be disgraced, and Zion lay low, and all these things, to now shall come to pass in the latter days, that is, these last days, the great day of judgment that is actually a day of joy for the faithful remnant here, shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And so here he's not speaking about a literal mountaintop, like the Mount of Israel or anything like that, but rather, where is the word of God preached? And so here, as he's speaking of the faithful remnant, the remnant of Israel here, we are of that remnant that he is speaking of. And so that is the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. So that is where wherever the word of God is preached and taught in its truth and purity here. That is this mountain of the Lord, and it's the highest of the mountains. And so this lifting up out of the ruins around us is this great glory, this great beaming light in the midst of this destruction here. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come. And so this gathering together of all these peoples from many nations or other places in scripture of all tribes and all peoples these many nations gathering together and they're flowing to this this mountain. And so we see a glimpse of that in today's church. This now and not yet that we speak of often here, we get a little bit of a glimpse of what's to come each time we gather together at church. And then all these people they're gathering together and they're saying come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And so, if you guys are able to come to the Thanksgiving Day service this week, it's hard to believe that it's Thanksgiving week already, but we're going to be doing the order of Matins here. And so, you'll be singing the Venite, which is Latin for O come. And then we start out with these same words O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And so we're joining in the same song that they are singing, of these many nations coming together. And we'll be joining together and saying, "Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. And so we all gather together and sing these praises. We flow to the mountain of the Lord, that is his stronghold that is, his church. And we gather together, we flow to it, and we join in and sing this same song as the people of God. In that song, they say that he may teach us his ways. And so again, we get a glimpse of that in the divine service each Sunday, each time we gather together, who's the one doing the acting here in Micah? That he may teach us his ways. We gather together in order that he may teach us. Not that we give anything to God in that respect, but that he gives to us. We receive his gifts, and then we respond in thanksgiving of singing these praises to God. But the whole action is God is the one who is teaching us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. And so this desire to actually come and be taught that we, walk in, that we may walk in his paths, this great desire that is very different from the world around us today. And even it's hard to get to church on Sunday sometimes, and you don't always want to be taught the ways of the Lord. It's not always joyful to be told what we should and should not do. But in these latter days, in this great revelation in this new heavens and the new earth that will come. We will joyfully go that we may be taught his ways, that we may delight in his law and his word day and night there. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Verse 3, he, that is the Lord, shall judge between many peoples, And shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So the Lord is the one who is going to be the judge over the nations, the nations that are far away. And so it's not this isolated ruling of the Lord, but rather ruling over these nations far away this global ruling that he will have. We covered this last week, beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, so that which was used for warfare will now be used for peace and for for great prosperity there. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so as these people are coming to this mountain of the Lord, that they may be taught by the Lord. They're coming to learn his ways, and no longer will they learn war anymore. And so we have this great difference here of what we used to do is be learning war, being taught the ways of war, how to use our swords and spears effectively, and we see this today in the nations. You've got to learn warfare, learn the art of warfare, that you may be defended. And as in the midst of this wicked world that we have to defend ourselves from others. But in this new heavens, this new earth, in these latter days, we won't have to learn war anymore. It will be this time of peace and prosperity in which the Lord is the one who is judge, and he is the one who is ruling over the nations here. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So they will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, this imagery of this prosperity, just resting under these vines, resting under the shade of these Trees and this vegetation for the mouth of the Lord of hosts, so the Lord of the armies, he is the one who has spoken, and no one shall make them afraid anymore. And so, as we get closer to Advent, you know, the, where we start to focus on the second coming of Christ and being prepared, as we get to the last Sunday of the church here, we'll have the parable of the ten virgins there. If you recall in the parable, what happens to those who are entered into the wedding feast? The door is shut. And so they enter in, the door is shut behind them, and the foolish cannot enter. And so it's a great promise and great peace there that this door is shut and that the evil of the world around them can't get into that wedding feast for those wise, those who have been clothed with Christ. And so that door is shut. The evil cannot enter in. It's this great time of feasting, this great time of peace that awaits them. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And So you don't have anything to be afraid at that point. There won't be any more warfare. There won't be any more overturning of these military powers. For the Lord has spoken and you won't be afraid anymore. Come, Lord Jesus, please, please hurry, that he would bring such peace to us. Are there any questions on one through four?
1: Other than, uh, i have to laugh, because that's what the United Nations has on their little thing in the plow. They beat their swords <coughs> in the plowshares, you know.
0: Oh, really? They,
1: yeah, they, they think they're going to bring it about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and mean, you know that song from the 60s? I don't know who sang it, Pete Seeger or somebody, we'll study war no more. It's the same kind of thing. Like They're just taking it out of context. They're not thinking like the last judgment. They're thinking, mm-hmm. well, see, the Bible says this. So we're <laughs> yeah. against the Vietnam War, so. Yeah. just yeah. The Same kind of just out of context. Yeah, out of context. They think they're going to bring it about by themselves. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And the commentator for the Concordia commentary on Micah has something great to say about that specific where they kind of take it out of context and try to bring it about now. And he says, The great promise of peace is easy to lose sight of when war and violence fill our ears and eyes in the fulfillment of prophecy seems a faint and fading hope. The temptation is either to give up the hope offered in these words of Scripture... Or to try to resolve the tension by attempting to bring the future promise completely into the present rather than letting the future promise guide our present life. We are able to endure the sorrows of the present age because of the certainty of our hope. And so if we try to bring this completely into fulfillment now, what is it that we have to look forward to? And so we can endure this suffering, all this warfare knowing that this great peace awaits us. So we may get a little bit of a glimpse of it here on this side of eternity. We may not. But we have that to look forward to, that this great time of peace. And so then you can endure that suffering, knowing what awaits. And you can suffer anything if you know something better awaits you at the end of it. Can you not? And so, if you just try to reduce all this down into some present day NATO or something like that peace that we're going to bring, we have this great peace that we have to look forward to. And that gives us hope in the midst of all kinds of suffering, warfare, bloodshed around us. And we earnestly pray that that time would come quickly. So any other thoughts on that passage? All right. Verse five, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God forever and ever. And so here we get to this distinction between all the peoples as all these nations that do not worship the one true God, but they each walk in the name of its own God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. And so this distinction between the pagan nations and those who follow the Lord, you know, you're not becoming a people that are indistinguishable from the pagan nations, but rather walk in the name of the Lord our God. So they are distinct in that way. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those, those whom I have afflicted. So here again, at the beginning of chapter 4, we had in the latter days. Now in that day, speaking of the same time here, I will assemble the lame. So these are, this is the surprising acts of God that he would... Assemble the lame, those who are weak in the eyes of the world. Gather those who have been driven away, those whom I have afflicted. So his people who have been afflicted by these atrocities, he will gather them together, those who have been driven away in all these different conquerings of, from other nations. And the lame I will make the remnant. Here we get that language of the remnant once again. And those who are cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Verse 8. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So here we get a little bit of a shift of this it's still kind of the same imagery of gathering together the lame it's kind of like gathering together the sheep here the tower of the flock oh, you o oh, tower of the flock so the lord who is kind of the tower he is the one watching over his flock he is the watchman he is the hill of the daughter of zion to you shall it come now why do you cry aloud? So now we get a little bit of a more of law in the midst of all this great peace and this gathering together of God's faithful remnant. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor? For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. All right here. So here we get, why do you cry aloud? So there's no king in you. Counselor perished, likely the same person as the king. Then we get this imagery again of a woman in labor. So we saw that in Amos. We've seen that throughout scripture, even from the Lord himself here, like a woman in labor. So this crying out, so even in the midst of all this suffering, there's still kind of that joy, that hint of the gospel still waiting, the joy of the new birth that is to come, even in the midst of this writhing and groaning, because it is there that you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So in chapter 5, we're going to get more of a messianic promise explicitly laid out in chapter 5. But here we get that little bit of a hint there. There you shall be rescued. The Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So the one who is to come. We get to the start of the imagery of the woman in labor, these birth pains. And then comes forth this new birth that we'll see in chapter 5. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. So this is in stark contrast to verse 6, where the Lord is saying, I will assemble the lame. So he is doing this gathering together of the lame and those who cannot help themselves. So there we have the Lord assembling, but now these many nations are assembled against you. They are assembling themselves against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. So they're seeking evil for this nation of the Lord. And they've set their eyes and let their eyes gaze upon Zion. So looking at Zion with that desire to plunder Zion there. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. So they have gathered themselves together and put their eyes upon Zion, that they may defile Zion, but they don't know the thoughts of the Lord, that he is, in fact, the one who is gathering them as sheaves to the threshing floor. So that is these, this wicked, these wicked nations here. It says, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people, and you shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. And so these nations gather together against the people of God in order to plunder them. But in fact, it is the Lord who is Gathered them together in order that they would be threshed. And so he is saying to the daughter of Zion, that is, to us as well here, this faithful remnant, the faithful people of God, he's saying to us, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. And we get the imagery of the horn, uh, it'll make your horn iron, it'll make your hoofs bronze, so this great power and might that he is, the imagery there is speaking of. And here the beat in pieces many people and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Not a physical beating in pieces of the many people, but rather what are the wicked nations wanting to do to the people of God? To plunder, to destroy, to bring them under their reign, the reign of Satan and his princes. And so the Lord here is saying to the people of God, beat in pieces many peoples, that is, the peoples of Satan, and devote their gain to the Lord. That is, plunder them, that is, take up the sword of the Spirit against Satan and his princes, wage war against his dominion. And then whatever you plunder in that way, devote to the Lord. So, bringing pagans into faith in Christ here is kind of the imagery that a lot of commentators have interpreted it this way of waging the spiritual warfare here. And so winning over those those who would be under the control of Satan and his domain here. Does that make sense or any thoughts or questions on that? Again, Mike is kind of a tough one to to parse out sometimes. Well, I have a question about yeah. you shall
1: go to Babylon. Mm-hmm. And there you shall be rescued. So, is it the emphasis is taken off the temple being in Jerusalem, and or I don't know? I, can you talk a little more about that? Mm-hmm. In verse ten.
0: Yeah. Let's see. You shall go to Babylon. Yeah. Is dwelling in the open country. So again, the kind of imagery of those who have been scattered, and so it's these many nations that we see in verse two. So this gathering together of the many nations who have been scattered throughout, and so it's no longer one group of people anywhere, but rather this great multitude that have been scattered all throughout the earth, gathering them together. Does that answer the question? Or, well, yeah, I guess yeah.
1: I'm just wondering, is that, like, with the coming of Jesus mm-hmm. um, being, like, and his talking about the temple being destroyed, and so, like, the emphasis is now off of this, this special covenant with yeah. the Jews in Jerusalem, but now the temp- we are the temple of God, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I would think that would be what's kind of in sight here, yeah.
1: Yeah,
0: thanks. Any other thoughts, questions? All right, chapter 5. So now here, here we get the great prophecy of the Messiah and where he is to be born in verse 2. Starting out, 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of, o daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And so some may try to point to this to kind of striking the judge of Israel on the cheek, as kind of alluding to Christ and him being struck. But it seems, and some the commentators kind of take it this way as well, as some unnamed old ruler here that's not being explicitly laid out. Because then in verse 2, he's explicitly changing to, but you, O Bethlehem, and this new ruler that is to come, and the new birth of this ruler, which is Christ, specifically there. And so it seems like he's, Micah's making a distinction here between this old ruler that was struck on the cheek and this new ruler that is to come, namely Christ. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. And so this is, if you recall, in Matthew chapter 2, with the birth of Christ and Herod and he gathers together the scribes and he's saying, you know, where is this child to be born? And so they go specifically to this passage in Micah here to say, in Bethlehem, that's where his birth is foretold here. And so that's in Matthew two verse six that they quote this specifically, "One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days." And so in your study note on that last part, the coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days." The study note puts here origin of Israel's famous King David, born three centuries before Micah's day, was somewhat ancient, but the promised ruler's origin was even more ancient because he was begotten of the Father from eternity. See notes, Proverbs 8, 23. And Luther writes regarding this, "'He does not come forth first from Bethlehem after the Babylonian captivity, but came forth a long time ago already.'" This is just the way John describes the divinity of Christ in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. In his song of Psalm 90, verse 2, Moses sings, From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. There, Moses used the same expression that Micah uses here. That is, you did not begin with the world, but when the world began to be, you already were. Christ also says about himself, before Abraham was, I am. That's in John eight fifty eight here. And so even in the Old Testament here, we get this this teaching of the Son and that he is not a creation of the Father or anything of that such. But even in these Old Testament prophecies already, they knew full well the Trinity here. And so this eternality of them, whose coming forth is from of old, from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And so, therefore, he shall give—that is, the Lord—them is the people of Israel. He shall give them up until the time. And so give them up unto suffering, being oppressed by other rulers of that age. But it's all temporary here. Give them up until the time. So there's not this indefinite suffering, this indefinite handing handing over of them. Rather, it's all temporary. And so a great comfort for us too that all of our suffering is but temporary. That we have, until the time, not when she who is in labor has given birth, but rather until the time when Christ comes again and that new birth of the new heavens and the new earth comes. And so that temporality of this suffering. When she who is in labor has given birth. So again, commentators take that to be speaking of Mary specifically, or at least alluding to her, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So here we have the one who is born of the woman, He will stand and shepherd his flock. So he will not be lying down in weakness in that way, but rather standing and shepherding, being on guard for his flock. Even though we do get the imagery of he who lays down his life for the sake of the sheep, we get that imagery, but here we kind of get the other side of that coin, that he is standing and shepherding and that he is standing in strength, standing in the majesty of the name of the Lord. And so not lying down in weakness, but rather in strength, shepherding his people. And they shall dwell secure. That is, the flock who is under the care of the shepherd shall dwell secure. So we get this with the feeding of the 5,000, with Christ saying, you know, have them sit down in the green grass, that he comes and he feeds them. You get that in the Psalm 23, lies, makes me lie down in green pastures. That same imagery of our shepherd, and under him we can dwell secure and rest and be at peace. For he's standing guard, he is shepherding us, and he's doing so in strength. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That is a peace that the world cannot give, but a peace only through, through him and through what Christ has done for our sake. Verse 5 continues, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, Then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. And so here we get a little bit of a difficult passage of just of the seven shepherds and the eight princes, what he's speaking of here. I think the general meaning is pretty clear of we have our Lord who is our great shepherd. He is the one standing guard. But then we get these seven shepherds and these eight princes of men, kind of those under him, under his rule. In the seven and the eight, seven is the number of God and then eight is the new creation. So we get that with, you know, Noah. Got seven others plus Noah, eight souls in all. That new creation, the eighth day we speak of sometimes, especially with baptism, that new birth. So that's kind of what's in view here is when the Assyrians come and they tread in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds. These eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. And so, this great reversal of whenever the Assyrians come, then these seven shepherds and these eight princes will rise up and they'll shepherd the land with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And so, who are these shepherds and these princes? what is the role of a pastor if not a shepherd? So the Lord raising up seven shepherds, these holy men of God and these eight princes, so even these rulers of the earth to fight against these Assyrians or those that would come and try to rule us and tread in our palaces. So those seven shepherds and those eight princes, they'll shepherd with the sword. So they'll come in with great might and not mince words or anything. They'll come with wielding the sword. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. And so this great reversal, this great deliverance out of the hand of the Assyrians that is out of the hands of wickedness, and the Lord uses shepherds, uses pastors and leaders in order to carry out that deliverance for them. Any questions on that?: I have a question on chapter four that was the mm-hmm. last phase.: Yeah but then now this is before the last days. Yeah, Micah's pretty confusing in that way. You never... you. It's hard to follow an exact timeline of what Micah's speaking about when. And so some will even... Some kind of think that Micah, the book of Micah here, is kind of a compiling together of a bunch of different little sermons and stuff. And so whether or not that's the case, we'll never know. And so you kind of see that with a great just changes of tone from one verse to another, especially at the end of chapter three to the beginning of chapter four. This kind of destruction of Zion and everything. And then, well, in the latter days, this great, it will be the highest mountain of the Lord and all this stuff. And so it's kind of hard to, he'll be changing a lot. And it's sometimes difficult to know when he's speaking about the latter days versus now When is he speaking about this present reality for us or something that's awaiting them the judgment of the assyrians or something or what's already happened with a previous you know destruction of their land and so yeah it's pretty difficult to kind of you know. that would be like my problem more Mhm okay. Yeah in the in our western mindset we are very much in this linear kind of mindset, and, you know, you can't even, was it, I don't know, in English classes, mixing, you know, whether or not, or what persons, are you speaking in the first person, or the third person, you can't, you don't dare switch, or use different tenses for certain things, so you gotta keep it consistent all throughout, but here they're just not as concerned about that, and That's kind of the great beauty and the great frustration of the Hebrew language itself. The same word can be in the future tense, kind of, or it can be kind of in the past tense or more present reality, and it's very difficult and not quite as direct and black and white as we would like. It's a lot more circular in their speech. But even then, to give them some credit, if this is kind of the compilation of a bunch of different little things that he is saying. If you compile the random teachings of myself or pastor and put them all together and didn't have any distinctive marks, you'd be as confused as we are reading the book of Micah here. Okay, what's he talking about now? Is he talking about you know, the life that's to come or this present thing or what's going on? And so over the couple thousand years, we've kind of lost the context that he's necessarily speaking of
1: i don't know in a way though it seems like uh, since it's talking about from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in israel i mean the idea that jesus said my kingdom is not of this earth so Mm -hmm. this is this is the kingdom to come so there's no sense. there's no it's it's all referring to what's to come Mm-hmm. So there's there's talk that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, but His kingdom is is sort of now not yet. We, we talk about it. Mm-hmm. My kingdom is at hand, but but at the same time the the judgment to come is ruling over all. It's so I mean it seems like they could both be talking about the. the the future, yeah, than the Last Judgment. Yeah, the way the Bible, though, if you read in Genesis, if you look at the creation story, they tell you the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the day and day, when, and And then he goes in, you go a couple of chapters later, he goes in particular what happened on that day. That's what that's, that's what Micah does. They do the same thing. They, they tell you a general outline, and then they go back and fill in the details great deal. Mm. That's what you're getting, is the detail part of it. So that's the way, that's the way to me it seems like
0: what Mike's doing is what they did in Genesis, mm. you know. I had one professor kind of explain it in more of a spiral shape, and so even whenever talking about the church year of why we repeat the church year over and over again, and why they kind of go in this circular speech is you're not continuously marching on, but rather you're going around the same thing. And as you go around, you dig a little deeper the next time. You go a little further down, a little further down. And so as you're circling back around to these same things or kind of, we're gonna take you down this path, but we're gonna bring you back over here. But now recall what I said earlier, and now we're gonna go back over here and to kind of give you a more full view of what's going on here. And so that's also why we and to have the church here as we have it. And the great joy of that is you're hearing the same readings over and over and over. So as you hear them over and over over the life, over your life, you're going to be able to go deeper and deeper into those passages. As opposed to, well, whenever you're born and we start in Genesis 1 and then maybe you make it to Revelation by the time you die, you know you're going to be just hitting one thing over over the course of your life, but here you're going to continuously go back to it. I don't know why I got off on that. It doesn't quite apply, but nevertheless. Are there any other thoughts on that before we? Yeah, so that is kind of the great difficulty of Micah, and not just Micah, but it's just a completely different mindset than what we're used to. In the West, here very, very linear for us, and they're just not not concerned about that. And it's very frustrating sometimes to put it together. And Micah's especially bad because there's not quite as clear of divisions that some of the other prophets may have here. Right? Let's see verse seven. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for man, nor wait for the children of man. So here the remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples. Again, here speaking of the church. So, because the, if the remnant was specifically just the nation of Israel... They wouldn't be in the midst of many peoples, would they be? What is the church if not spread throughout the globe? It may be small in some places. It may just be a tiny little remnant. But it is a remnant in the midst of many peoples, many nations. And then these people, this, the church of God, is like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And so as dew is there in the morning and gone in the afternoon, or showers, well, at least yesterday it was kind of showers all day, but sometimes you'll have showers in the morning and it'll be gone by the afternoon. And so as they go in times of prosperity in some nations, and sometimes they're seemingly gone, is all the work of the Lord here, like do from the Lord. It is the Lord's doing that the church is present throughout these many nations. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. All right, so we get repetition in verse 8 of what we had in verse 7, at least that first half. But then we get to the picture of the remnant being a lion amongst the beasts of the forest, or a young lion amongst the flocks of sheep here. And so these lions, this church of God, takes up, again, the sword of the Spirit, treads down and tears in pieces, there's none to deliver. So it tears down the domains of Satan and his power, tears it in pieces, there's none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and I will destroy your chariots. So this is speaking of that final judgment again in that day. you cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. So again, all these things that they, we would place our trust in. We see this in the Minor Prophets. We saw it in Amos, see it in Micah too with trusting in their military power and their military might for security. And so in that day, the Lord will purge away these things that you would place your trust in. So he will cut off your horses, destroy your chariots, so your military might there, your chariots for your armies. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds saw that, especially in Amos speaking to the pagan nations of, you really want to trust in those strongholds? I'm going to send fire down on it and destroy it. It's of no use. You can't protect yourself and save yourself from my power. But they would think so, didn't they? All those nations, even Israel, trusted in their military might for their security. And so here in this final judgment, the Lord is saying he will Cut off the cities and throw down all your strongholds. Purge away all that stuff that you would trust. Put your trust in. And I will cut off your cut off sorceries from your hand. You shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. So again, this purging away of these carved images or anything else that you may be tempted to bow down and worship to, and not I, the Lord your God. So he is saying he will cut these off, destroy them, and I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. So a study note on verse 14 for the Asherah, Canaanite vegetation goddess and wife of Baal. Asherah Images were usually wooden posts or trees that were seen as access points to the favorable presence of the goddess. So again, these carved images are these Asherah images. And destroy your cities. So again, what you're placing your trust in. And so that is for the people of God that he will purge away these things then verse 15, And in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So if you'll notice in verses 10 through 14, it's this cutting off, this purging away, but it's not destruction of the people. He is simply purging away that which is evil in them, and so cleansing them of that stuff for their own sake. But for those who did not obey, in verse 15, in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on those nations. So for those that do not obey my law, then he says he will come and execute vengeance. But for those who did obey, that day of final judgment will be a day of purging away all that stuff that is... That would lead us away from keeping our eyes on the Lord. Any thoughts on chapter 5? So, again, we're kind of at the end of the. Um, oh, how they describe it here. The prophecies of hope and restoration here. And then, verse 6, we're going to get a shift and speaking about pleading the case. We'll get that imagery again of kind of a courtroom language in chapter 6. Are there any thoughts on the hope and restoration for this faithful remnant of the Lord in chapters 4 and 5? Before we move on. Again, just what a great joy and comfort that last day is for us, the remnant of God, the remnant of Israel here, that it won't be a day of judgment, and destruction. It's a day of purging away all that evil within us. It's this this cleansing in this new peace that we will have, having been freed from all these desires of the Asherah or all these idols or placing our trust in our cities and all that. It will be this cleansing. So what a great joy the last day will be for us. So we don't have anything to fear, especially in the midst of all the fear-mongering of, well, this, what's going on in Israel is a fulfillment of this prophecy, and so then that starts the thousand-year reign of this or that, and so beware because hellfire and brimstones is coming down on you. It's all that fear-mongering of the last days. Rather, it's a great joy. If the Lord comes now, great, I'll be cleansed sooner of all this stuff. If not, we'll endure because we know what awaits. We have that hope and that peace that is to come here. So again, just a great, great reflection for us as we get closer to the season of Advent, look towards the last Sunday of the church here, and then ultimately that new birth of Christmas, that coming forth of Christ the Messiah here. So that new birth in the midst of suffering and great pain here. All right, so chapter 6 then. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. And so here again is that the courtroom language of the people of God are to plead their case before the Lord, and he's calling the mountains and the hills as witnesses to this pleading of the case. So which is kind of an odd imagery and we don't really speak that way anymore, but nevertheless Micah does here. And actually the Lord himself says this. It says, "Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel." So again, a pretty stark contrast to the great words of hope and restoration in chapters 4 and 5. And now this switch into, all right, plead your case, people. I have an indictment against you. Are you ready to plead your case before me? So whether or not this is all the same sermon that he's giving or a different one, we'll never know. But the Lord continues in verse 3, O my people, what have I done to you? how have I wearied you? Answer me. So again, that language of my people. We got that in Amos. We see that again here of the Lord saying, what have I done to you to deserve this unfaithfulness by you? In verse four, we'll get a reminder of all the things that he has done for them. It says, how have I wearied you? Answer me. Give me an answer for why you have been unfaithful to me. Do you have any defense for that? Are you going to stand up and defend yourself in this court of law? Because the mountains and the hills, they'll they'll be called as witnesses against you, against your unfaithfulness to me. And so the Lord brings his own evidence in verse 4 here. So exhibit A for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Yeah, don't you remember me delivering you from the land of Egypt, from the hand of Pharaoh here? That great act of salvation for you. Do you remember that? Yeah. Oh, my people, I did that for you. Now, what what are you doing to me? Except great unfaithfulness in return. So that's Exhibit A. Exhibit B, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So he sent these great leaders, Moses, to deliver them. O my people, remember when Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. So in your study note on verse 5, for Balak, king of Moab, Moab, Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel, but the Lord forced him to bless Israel instead. So you get that in Numbers 22 to 24, if you want to look at it more. Let's see, verse 6. And to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So again with the wicked people of Israel, we had the rulers that knew what justice was, but instead did the complete opposite. And so was the Lord desiring and requiring of them, but to do justice, to love kindness, that is the chesed, the steadfast love of the Lord and to walk humbly with your God. So we'll probably... Yeah, we'll probably stop there for today. It's going to continue on with the crying out to the city and this destruction. And then we'll get into chapter 7, and that'll be the last chapter of Micah. And so next week, let's see. Next Thursday's Thanksgiving. Yeah, so we won't have class or anything, so then it'll be the following week that will finish up Micah and then move on with some more of the minor prophets. There's not any questions or anything. The last bit. One, two, three? (laughs) Sold, no. The Lord be with you.